Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 384. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 384 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer Sam Moses, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. You can check him out at MosesMastering.com. He's worked with Billy Ray Cyrus, The Aces, Jake Miller, Fly By Midnight, and a host of many, many others. We have a great conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So, Sam Moses coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the importance of our peers. I made this LinkedIn post this morning thanking uh, many people for helping me bring my Dolby Atmos mix room online. It included several guests from the show, including uh, Steve Jenowick, Brad Wood, Dave Way, Brendan Duffy, Colin Brooks, Michael James, McKay Garner, Michael Blodgett. It also included some folks from Dolby, uh, the guys over at PMC and Grace Design, and of course, Kerry Thomas, formerly of Dolby, now head of spatial audio over at Apple. The reason I thank these people is because this room wouldn't have happened in the way that it did as fast as it did, even though it took a while, and most of that was me, uh, it wouldn't have happened like it did without those people. It wouldn't have happened in such a quality way without them. Every one of those people on that list, I've eaten up their time on the phone, they've given, given me countless hours of advice over the course of the time that this has taken to put together. Everybody's been very patient. Now, yeah, sure, I paid for it, and yeah, it was my idea to do it, but the minute I decided to do it, I started making phone calls to each and every one of these people to get the information that I needed, to get the support and help that I needed, to make sure that I didn't do it wrong. So the value of our peers in our life cannot be understated. The value of even the people that you don't know that well that come into your life and help cannot be understated. I mean, Jonathan Lesner from Dolby, who was here for only a day, I mean, by the end of the day, Jonathan and I, you know, it seemed like we were fast friends, right? So do I not value his effort as much? No, I value it equally as much as everybody else because he played a major role in making sure that this thing got done in the way that it needed to get done. Whether or not you are a uh, up-and-comer in school, you're a freelancer, you're a studio owner, whatever your role is, your peers are so important. And it's also important to recognize their contribution to your success. Because if you're just a lone wolf out there doing this without, you know, anybody's help, well, good for you uh, in some regards. But honestly, at the end of the day, you know, all of my friends come from the world of music and audio. So these people are not just peers. They're also friends, some better than others, but they're all friends in my eyes. So if you're a lone wolf and you don't have any friends, well, I'm sorry to hear that. When we talk about networking on this show, this is what I'm talking about. You go to those trade shows year after year. You see that, you know, you make friends with a person one year and the next year you see them again and again and again and again. You hang out, you talk shop, you drink coffee, you drink beers. It's a development of a relationship. 
they help you when, when they can, you help them when you can. It's a friendship at its core. And yes, in the networking sense, there is a business element to it, sure. So I'll try to wrap this up by just saying that it's hard to do this shit alone, people. And I find that I'm far more successful when I have the help and support of people like this behind me. Don't like talking to people? Well, it may be time to reevaluate that. And it may be time to get out of your shell and go out there and start making friends in whatever area of audio you happen to hang in. Whether it's music or making films or any of the other disciplines, get out, make friends, because you may need to call on those friends at some point to help you and advise you. And that's exactly what all these people have done for me. And I am grateful to all of them. So remember, it's hard to do it alone. It's not impossible, but man, it really is a lot easier when you have friends and peers to help guide you through this jungle that is audio. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So 
head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we could sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Sam Moses here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a gift to be here. Pleasure to have you. We have a lot of ground to cover because mm -hmm. you're involved in a few things and we got to get the background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Bloomington Normal, Illinois, which is in the middle of Illinois, the middle of a cornfield. It's about two hours south of Chicago. And I lived there from birth up until college. In college, I went to Lincoln University, which is just like an hour outside of town. So most my 21 and under years were spent in the middle of nowhere in a cornfield in the Midwest. Wow. <laughs> and did that give you time to think about audio or music, or was that even <laughs> on your brain at that point? At the time, I was going to be a professional golfer. <laughs> that was the original thought. For some reason, our town was really into golf. We had like five golf courses in the high school I went to. was always very competitive state and on a national level with golf. So I originally, and I had an older brother, or I have an older brother who was into golf. He was really good. And it just kind of became this family thing that we would play golf all the time. And then it got competitive. So up until like college, and I played golf in college for a year, and then I quit, which transitioned to music. I was very much under the impression I would be a professional golfer. Was saying that my dad was a construction laborer for many years in Illinois until he got older and then kind of moved to a desk job of project management stuff. But he was in a bluegrass band called Bluegrass Crossroads and he played banjo. And actually, before he met my mom, and this is stuff I learned like years ago, he actually had a studio in his first house that he had built many years ago. Hmm. So there was this weird kind of like upbringing with golf. And then I would go and watch him play banjo doing different like little cornfield <laughs> concerts and whatnot. Nothing ever large or anything. But he did that for like probably seven or eight years as I was growing up. So I would say I was around music, but watching him do that and watching once I got probably like 10, 11, 12, comprehended what was going on. It just seemed like such a difficult life to do like gig life and tour life. And then that he kind of stopped doing that, I think, mainly just because it had run its course. The season was over and he wanted to focus on work and being a dad and all that with me and my brother and, and golf took over. So, <laughs> but that's kind of like my years at Illinois growing up was not really ever thinking about working on music outside of I was just obsessed with rap music. That's all. <laughs> I used to like record off the radio onto a boom box at a very young age because I wasn't allowed to really listen to rap or raise Midwest, like very conservative Christian. And I would take a little clock radio into the closet with a boom box and record that from a very young age. Some of my like core memories are <laughs> recording the radio of rap and then listening to it. <laughs> you were covertly taking the, the clock radio into the closet because it was isolated yeah. and you could record it and then play it back on a Walkman later? Yeah, yeah. And your parents wouldn't know? They wouldn't know. At least I thought they didn't know. They probably knew, but I kept it all in my closet. Eventually, my mom, when I got into high school or college, I think it was, this closet in my room became like my safe spot <laughs> of where I would hide things. I didn't really hide really anything. I was honestly like a really 
good conservative kid, whatever that means. <laughs> but, Co- you, know, you know, covertly recording rap you know, in the closet. Yeah, yeah. But one day she was like, are you having private parties in your closet? <laughs> I'll never forget that. So then I confessed, you know, to my private parties. So I think she eventually knew or already knew, but I like to think as conservative I was raised, I think my parents gave me some leeway and they probably knew what I was doing in there. We're like, this is okay. It's music at least, not something else. So so that's something I can see there's like a recording engineering listening aspect that has been with me for many, many years, even though I didn't even understand that was a job probably you could have for life. When did you come to the realization that audio could be a job? That was probably when I was originally in a band right out of college. And that was kind of my introduction to the music industry. And I had been playing with this band that did a lot of church conference type stuff. And this would have been like 21 right out of college. I'm 34 now. So we basically, we wanted to make like a piano rock album, like the Fray or One Republic was our big influences Mm -hmm. at the time. And that was really before they were big bands too. They were on their rise. But we kind of just said, let's see if we can make a record and, and then go on tour. And so we cut, well, we cut like a record in Chicago, moved my whole life to Chicago, basically downtown, lived with all our bandmates, my now wife, who was my girlfriend and fiance during this time, she moved up there. And basically the first time I thought about music being a career was just when we recorded, we paid someone money. (laughs) We paid a producer to come over to our basement is where we recorded it, but he brought all his recording gear and everything to this basement in the Chicago house. There were six of us living there. One guy was from Craigslist. It was a wild time. And we recorded and we paid him. And then the long story short of that is we eventually paid a mixer and then we paid a mastering engineer, made a full length record, put it out. But during that whole process, I just realized how expensive at the time I thought it was expensive, what we were paying these guys to do these records. And I thought, well, shoot, whether or not we get famous, they get paid the same amount. (laughs) Like, That's right. So I was kind of thinking that's kind of a better gig but I still wanted to be a rock star on some level I think and so we did the band thing and did that for a year or two the long story short of that too is we just dissolved and the lead singer wanted to do something else and I had just gotten married and it was just kind of one of those things where we had actually come to Nashville during that time and had some deals on the table but it wasn't the right timing I think all of us wanted to make a record together to have that as like a time stamp and something we did as a band but I think the touring life is not for us. So when that dissolved and ran its course, that's when I went back to a couple of the engineers we had worked with and was kind of like, I want to do like engineering, recording, production. And mainly that was out of necessity of money more than anything at the time because I was broke. Who did you approach to discuss that? At that time, the guys that worked on our record, a guy named Zach Jablo, who's in... Nashville now. He was a teacher at Columbia. He helped produce and engineer it. And then the guy who mixed and mastered it was John Ovnick, who has done a mess of stuff. He was he was a sweetheart. He did a bunch of stuff with Kiss and he worked with Michael Jackson. He does a ton of sync TV stuff still now I know. And he had heard our demos from Zach, the producer. Zach worked at Columbia and then also worked at Apple downtown Chicago. And for some reason, Zach was 
playing these demos and this guy was in the store and heard it <laughs> and was like, what's this? Now, these these are the guys that worked on your record, but you, yeah. you said you had approached some engineers about doing this. Or these, yeah, I approached them after you approached the record them. was done. Okay, I get yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, I went back to them and basically was like, you guys know what happened to the band. I know you know my situation, just being newly married. And I know we basically paid y'all up front and that seems like a sweet gig and you don't have to travel or do all this road work and performance and stuff. You get right. to be at home and have somewhat normal hours. So there was kind of a light bulb moment of, I think I'll take that over trying to do the rock star thing. So that's kind of how that happened. Well, how did that happen? You go to somebody and you you make that that statement. What information did they give you to get you up and running? To be honest, they didn't give me much. They're super sweet people and I still <laughs> talk to them. But at that time, I think they were kind of like, this is a really hard gig too. <laughs> like, This is also a burden you should not put on yourself unless you have no other options <laughs> of trying to run a studio, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Right. If you could dig ditches or do audio, right. we suggest you dig ditches. Correct. Yeah. I started to realize that when we started talking about what does it take to record a band, microphone costs, studio, if you even have a studio. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, crap, this even costs more money than my Vox amp and guitar, like, because <laughs> I was a guitar player. So I was just watching them produce stuff on and off, but there was nothing paid or anything with that. But during that process, I just fell more and more in love with, at that time, it was recording rappers is a lot of what they did in Chicago and production of rap. So after like six months of on and off watching them, and then I was working at Aeropostale, the clothing store, which was a terrible situation. We just kind of like ran out of money and moved back to Bloomington and got a month to month apartment because my wife and I really, we had no idea what we were doing. I was 22. She was 20. So we were just young student loan debt, that typical story. <laughs> So yeah, so I started really making hip-hop beats. I learned how to produce in Chicago. Zach taught me a lot. There were a couple other guys that taught me a lot. I was working in Logic. I'd acquired a ton of samples from these studio sessions in Chicago from some pretty famous producers who were doing hip-hop stuff. And so I started making beats and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a beat maker. And then I was like, I need to find some rappers. So I randomly found a kid I knew from high school who was still in Bloomington and he was making some rap stuff. And I was like, hey, I got these beats. Do you want to rap on them or make a song out of them? I sent them to him. I came over to his house, made a couple on the spot for him. And then he was like, we're going to the studio tonight. I want to track this one. So we went to like the one and only studio in Bloomington. And a guy named Eric, who owned the studio, had done some larger work in Chicago and kind of went back and forth, basically. And he had done stuff with like Casey and JoJo and JoJo, her first big album. And he had worked with Luther Vandross. He did a lot of R&B and rap type stuff. Hmm. And so we went to the studio. Eric pulled up the beat. Vince, who was the rapper, started rapping. And then after a couple hours we were going through beats and Eric was just like, who made all these beats? And Vince was like, Sam did. And Eric was pretty impressed by it. So we started talking and we started doing more and more sessions there. And then eventually Eric was like, do you want to become an assistant and have your own clients and stuff? At that same time, 
I was recording people at my apartment as well for like half the rate of the studio, which was probably a bit shady looking back on it because I was basically taking the clients that were going there and coming to my apartment to track rap vocals on a beat (laughs) for half the cost. But you know, that's the industry, I guess. So I did that. And then eventually Eric gave me the keys to the studio, which was a really, I thought, a big day and was like, you can have clients in here whenever. That's always a big moment when somebody gives you keys to a studio. Yeah, I took them home to my wife and I was like, I think I have a job, which really just meant I have keys to a studio. I still need clients. Right. (laughs) So I had the potential, you know, to create a business. But part of that experience with Eric, and he's awesome and he's a big part of me getting into everything, is I watched him master records for a bit. And that's how I got into mastering was I would sometimes watch him master a record in like 30 minutes. And he was getting, I think... I think at the time it was like 60 an hour or something to do that. And I just thought that was an incredible gig. I had no comprehension of what mastering was, but it kind of came back to a money thing again, where I was like, man, I've been selling beats for like 30, 40 bucks a pop for like exclusives. Like I was signing my rights away (laughs) to these people for like $40, which I thought was a lot of money at the time. And then I watched him master and he was just ripping through song after song after song, making 60 bucks an hour. And I thought, well, that's a much better gig than anything I've been doing. So I want to do that instead. Hmm. So that kind of led me into the start of mastering. And I started mastering my own records that I was doing, not really knowing much about it other than at that time, it seemed like everything just got louder, which is most people's basic rudimentary understanding of mastering is something gets louder. And unfortunately... At this stage, loudness to me is like one-tenth of everything we do. (laughs) Yeah. It's important if you like compression, which is things are more loud more often. But at this stage, loudness to me is very easy to do. I think it's, it's easy to get records really loud and still sound good. But at the time, and I think still, there's this thing about mastering just making the record loud. And that's a misunderstanding of mastering to me. So you were still in your hometown, right? Yeah, we were living in like, honestly, I think it was Section 8 housing. It was month to month, pretty rough area. So when did you make the transition to Nashville? While I was in Illinois, after about a year of doing the rap hustle thing, selling beats and working at the studio, it was one of those situations once again where I was kind of like, this just, this doesn't seem sustainable. Right. The town I was in, Bloomington, is at least I viewed it, not large enough to support multiple studios. And Eric does a great job of what he does. He's the best guy in town. He does good work. And I just thought, this isn't the place for me. This isn't going to work out long term. So kind of randomly, I had a buddy, Austin Brucker, who's front of house guy in Nashville, at the time was in West Palm Beach doing front of house at some churches. And he basically called me and was like, do you want a job doing creative audio at a church salary by the beach? And I was like, that sounds like a sweet gig. (laughs) So (laughs) we went down there. My wife and I went down and I interviewed and got the job. And then like a week later, we moved to West Palm Beach, Florida. And I started doing audio for a church down there. And then on top of that, this is where like Nashville intertwines kind of accidentally. Danny Zayas, who was in 10th Avenue North, which is a large Christian band. Danny started his own studio down there. We met them through the church. And then my wife ended up becoming studio manager for them. Huh. 
Yeah, it was like so random. He was mainly at the time doing classes and teaching students how to make and write songs, you know, right. and learn instruments. And he's crazy talented. He's a wonderful person. I got to meet him through my wife. And then Danny was kind of like, what do you do? And I told him, you know, I was doing sound and stuff. And I also made beats and blah, blah. And I showed him some stuff. And he was like, this is pretty good stuff. I've been wanting to start a studio artist development program where we like develop artists and make their songs and, and put them out. At the time I look at it, it was kind of like starting a label, you know, yeah. he called artist development. And he was like, would you want to head that up and work with me? And you can engineer, produce, mix, master, do that. And I'll mainly focus on writing and arrangement and production with the students. And I said, hmm. sure. So we built out a room in his studio for that, kind of like a two-room tracking situation. Or sometimes I just track people next to me if they felt more comfortable for vocals and things. And I started doing that on top of my job. So for a couple years, I was basically working a full-time job and then working part-time on top of that at the studio doing projects for different students that he had. And we did everything from pop to rock to Christian to folk, whatever the artist was. And that was a really neat time of spending a couple years, I'll say getting my chops, because mm -hmm. it was just the two of us. And we were working with brand new people a lot of the time. So it's not always, I don't want to say they're bad, they're just inexperienced is how I like to look at it. Right. I don't really feel like people are bad. I think they're just inexperienced <laughs> a lot of the time. But I was working with them and it was just this ongoing thing of, I think I really want to make records. And the church job was not about making records. It was about making a service sound good. Right. That's not making records. <laughs> so Did you find that church gig boring? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah I felt it was a step Whatever it was, it needed to happen. It got me out of Illinois, got my wife and I like to do that big leap of we're alone in a new area and a new community trying to figure out what does it look like to not be close to home situation. At least the weather was better. Weather was beautiful, yeah. <laughs> and there's there's some great people down there that I still work with. But yeah, during that time, man, I, I was young. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I was just feeling my way through life. And I knew audio was a part of it at that stage for sure. And really, I mean, at that church, the head front of house guy, Danny Daggers, his name, I think he's still down there, a great person as well. I bring him up because he went to mix with the masters in France with Michael Brower. Mm. And I remember him going, just thinking like, that's so cool. And then a week later, it's nine days later, he came back and explained what he learned and it was life changing and all these things. And he was like, you should do it. So I applied as soon as he got back because it just sounded like such a life-changing experience for him of learning how do people really make records, what's it all about. And I applied to go be with Joe Barisi, who obviously makes like heavy rock type records, kind of crazy records. I love Joe. Yeah, he's, he's a, a sweetheart too. He's a fantastic person too. <laughs> right. Yeah. So... I applied for him because at this stage, all I had been exposed to was very clean, like pop, CCM and rap. And I had done really nothing with rock. I thought, why don't I get a whole different perspective of how to approach music and go be with a rock guy and see what that's like. So I applied for his and got in and went to that in France. And that was life changing for me. It was like a melting pot of amazing engineers. Joe and I were the only Americans there. So it was like this melting pot of engineers and 
half of those guys, we all work together still. It was amazing. Like <laughs> this would have been nine years ago. And I just made friends for life over that week. And during that time, watching Joe work and getting his critique on my stuff, and Andrew Sheps was there too, and B, he had just done the week before. And I think during that time, back then it was eight guys is all they had. And it felt more communal, I'll say, than it does now with the scaling they've done and, and they've expanded it beyond just France. There's pros and cons to that. But Andrew started helping out too during that week with Joe and they tag teamed records the whole time. So we got like a two for one, which was fun. Wow. Also one of my favorite people. Yeah. Amazing person too. And that was when all of them were still super out of the box. So that that was super fun. Andrew had all his 1073s he had shipped in and all this stuff. And <laughs> now he's all in the box, still making great records. But yeah, towards the end of the week, at least what they did with us was sit down and said, what do you want to do with your life? Is this something you want to do or not? And they kind of both said, we think you have the chops. You're capable of making great sounding records. You've got proof of that with what you brought in and how you worked this week. And Joe, he basically said, you need to put yourself in a position to succeed. If you really want to give this a go, you probably need to move to like Nashville or LA or something and get out of this smaller scene that likes music but doesn't care how records are made. And that's such a big difference of a city that likes music and consumes it and likes entertainment. Like West Palm is a big entertainment area, but that doesn't mean they care about how records are made. And there's not a culture there of people that love making records or engineering. They just like consuming it. Right. So that hit me really hard. And I was contemplating that on the way home. And then I got home to my wife and I was like, I think we should move to Nashville. So she had known I wanted to leave Florida to pursue music somewhere else. We've always loved Nashville. We actually took our honeymoon in Nashville. And we had a few friends in the country world that were touring in Nashville just as players, like drummers or guitar players. So we took a leap of faith or whatever insanity. And I quit my job and we just packed everything up and moved to Nashville like one month later. And when we, what year was that? This would have been like nine years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was kind of like a serendipity moment again with Danny at the studio. My last project was this veteran who wanted to write a country song about America. And I told Danny I was moving and all this stuff. And he was like, maybe you should try and cut this song in Nashville. This is a country tune he wants to do. We don't really have country people down here doing anything. Why don't you take the budget, track it at a studio with real Nashville players. Let's give this guy like a crazy good song. So I just called one of my buddies here in town and said, I mean, I was so green then. I was like, I need a studio. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need to record somewhere. Do you have a studio, you know, or someone you trust? And then I was like, I'll need players too. And can you help me find those people? He did. And I went to Michael Hughes, who's at Hartwell Studios in Nashville on the west side of town. He's a, a gem of a person. And he did a full build out in his basement that Carl Tatz did, multiple rooms tracking. It's like a legit home studio. And it sounds terrific there. So I did this country song with him. And then we got some of the little big town people to play on it that he had known because he had toured with them. And this country song just came together quicker, better, faster than I've ever made a song. It was like a light bulb moment of, oh, these people know what they're doing. And this is what they do every day. Circle back to when did I think you could make a living doing music? 
that was one of those days of this is just another Tuesday for them. Right. They come in, <laughs> they play their parts, write their parts. They go to lunch. They got another session, you know, where they go home. Yeah. Musical assassins. Yes. Yeah. So that was a world rocking moment that is in my head forever of watching professionals execute and execute again and again and again and feeling encouraged but overwhelmed at the same time. But that project went really well and Michael and I hit it off and then Michael asked what I was doing and I said I was doing anything, <laughs> like anything, anything you'd like. What right. do you want? Done. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. He was like, I think I want to have you help engineer and produce and maybe mix my stuff because he really likes production engineering and writing more than mixing mastering. And so I started helping on everything he did for like a couple of years. We mainly did a lot of stuff for publishing companies. So potential pitches from Sony or Columbia or whatever, the artist or writer would come in and cut the song and we'd demo it out like a work tape situation. Mm -hmm. So we did that for a couple of years. And that was kind of my introduction to Nashville, which was such a blessing to have somebody like Michael to help me navigate it. And then a couple of years into that, he was the main person after watching me work for a couple of years of mainly mixing and mastering his stuff we were doing. He said, I think you need to focus on mastering. If you really want to establish yourself in this city, people hire people here to just do one thing that is possible. And I grew up with the initial mentality of being in smaller music cities of watching people do everything, jack of all trades situation, right. which isn't impossible, nor do I frown upon that. But Michael was just like, I think mastering's where you excel at. People continually just like, oh, the masters are great. I'm going to stop using my guy and go to your guy. And it just kind of affirmed. And he was like, you should rebrand and redo everything. Because at the time, I was like Sam Lightning, which is still my email address. But I was like DJ producer extraordinaire, this catch-all. Yeah. And he was like, you should brand something simple. Think about it. Either he did or I did. I don't know. We just said Moses Mastering. 
two M's, super easy, super clear, last name and what you do. Just clear your website and make Moses Mastering a new thing. So I did. I like erased everything, launched Moses Mastering officially, made business cards. From then on, he was like, you just need to tell everybody in town who you are, what you do, where they can find you. It was like those three things that are like a mantra in my head of who are you, what do you do, and where can they find you? So from there, it was just a heavy focus on mastering. And that's really what I've been doing for the last seven to eight years. 95% of my time is just mastering records. And I still produce here and there for hip hop stuff, but it's more of like a hobby, even though people pay me to do it on and off. But mastering is what I fell in love with. It's what people kept affirming me in. And it's something I've found that it's just a beautiful part at the end to help bring peace of mind that a record is done and, and ready to come out. And to be able to do that for people is a joy and a gift to help them either refall in love with their record or just know that it's ready to come out and it's going to compete in the market they want to. So that's the super long story short. Also, <laughs> there's like 1 million other people that have helped me in town, which if anything on this episode, everyone who would ever listen to this, thank you for ever helping me. But I have to like shout out Paul Moak too at the Smokestack because he gave me like a huge chance to master and once again, the serendipity of Nashville and also the power of putting yourself in a place to succeed. My wife randomly through a nanny agency became their nanny and nannied for their family for multiple years. And then I finally met Paul and he had worked on so many records that I like. He had his guys for mastering for everything he was doing or that would get sent off to mixing and then he would have heavy say still of who mastered it. And one day he let me do a shootout against, I think it was Sterling, he was like, we have this CCM record. I know you master. If you want to give a shot at it, we'll just A, B it with the label. Whoever wins, wins. And I was like, okay, cool. So I did this record and they ended up picking mine. <laughs> so since then, he was like, well, you can have all my business. It was like as simple as that. And if you know Paul, he's one of the most kind people too. And very straightforward, just like you can have my business now. <laughs> and that was the end of discussion. And we've, I've been doing like 99% of his records for like the last six or seven years now that he does. But he was such a champion of me and helping me over the years market and hone my skill and also just helping me be a happy whole human within the music industry. But I know he is a big part of Nashville of him telling people, you need to use Sam, you need to use Sam, give him a shot. Yeah. So... If anything, I just want to say my journey is like, I work really hard at what I do and I love what I do, but there's so many people that have helped me be where I am. Even this podcast, like, thank you for having me on because <laughs> you're another serendipity. Like, I love your show and stuff and here we are chatting and people will hear this and then my community will probably expand and I'll probably get to make some cool records from somebody. So... Thank you to you. <laughs> Let's hope it goes down that way. Yeah. So I have a few questions, of course, because that's my job. Let's talk a bit about your podcast, the Attack and Release show that you do oh, with sweet. Matthew yeah. Garber. Just give me a summation. Like you said before we started that you've been doing it for five years. Yeah. And you do it like every other week. Yes. Do you enjoy it? Oh, I love it. That podcast started from me mentoring Matt. Probably six years ago, I was in a place with Nashville. I felt like I had created a career on some level. Like things were rolling, projects were rolling. I'd gotten past that paycheck to paycheck feeling. And I thought, 
I want to help other people do this. There was a path I took and there were things I did that helped me get to where I am and also meeting people and learning how to talk and communicate and ask the right questions and figure out if you're a good fit, blah, blah. Basically business. I learned how to do business, (laughs) which is what you have to do. You're a business if you're in the audio world. I launched Moses Mentoring and I put it on the internet and... Matt had been following me on Instagram for a couple of years and I had worked on some records he liked. He contacted me and asked if I would mentor him from afar. He's in South Carolina. Okay. And he basically was like, I love mastering. I like these records you did. One of them was with Paul, the Ember Days record we did. And he was like, that record just sounds phenomenal, blah, 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 which, you know, a lot of that's Paul and the players, but me too. But I said, sure, I'll, I'll mentor you. I created a curriculum myself of things that I had done, checklists, inventory, just different things I'd written down over the years that had helped me clarify what is it I do and where do I want to go with my business and what do I need to do to get there and what can I throw away. So we started chatting about mastering and business and mainly he wanted to know how do I communicate with clients and customers? How do I onboard? How do I communicate clearly? How to ask the right questions? How do you troubleshoot when they're upset? And then how do you wrap project invoicing, kind of the nitty gritty of the day-to-day stuff that's really important. So we talked every week for six months. My commitment was, I want six months with you. We're going to measure where you are financially and client-wise here. And then in six months, we'll see where you're at based on the things I think you should implement. So we did that. And after six months, his business had grown quite a bit. And I told him, to be honest, this is everything you need to know. Let's take the training wheels off. You go out, keep mastering records, and let's just be peers at this stage. Right. And he came back a week later and was like, what you did was so helpful. We should just go through your curriculum again and all the questions we did. And let's just record them this time. And I'll ask you the questions. We'll dialogue. So the podcast, the starting point. Yeah, the first year is heavy on conversations Matt and I talked about during mentoring. And then after that, I basically told him, I'm only doing a podcast if it's fun for me. I'll give you one episode. If I don't like it, we're not doing it. And he's like, that's fine. So we did one on a fun topic that really wasn't necessarily part of the mentor. And we had talked about torrented software and the pros and cons of that with how it impacts business. Hmm. So the first episode we launched got like a really good response. And by really good, I mean like 50 people listened to it. So that was awesome. Well, that's <laughs> a start. That was amazing. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. Audience, I will put a link in the show notes to the Attack and Release show because I know that there's going to be a big group of you that want to hear about these Thank conversations because you. you're talking some things that tickle my ears, you know, onboarding and yeah, how to bring in the clients and stuff like that. Right. So I'll have a listen and I'll certainly put it in the show notes for the audience. I'd like to shift gears a little bit if I could yes. with you because we're, yep. we're almost out of time. Yeah. Tell me about your studio. The audience can't see it. Tell me about yeah. the studio behind you. Is it in your house? Yeah, this one is in my house. I've had multiple rooms. And by rooms, I mean, I started in my parents' basement and then I was in a laundry room and then I was in a bedroom. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to Nashville, I worked a lot out of Michael's room, which was a great room by Carl Tatz once again. And then a few years ago, right before COVID, I finally decided I wanted to do the commercial studio. So I found one in Berry Hill where all the studios are and signed a three-year lease, did a build out there with another producer buddy because it was too large just for me to be in there, Phil Barnes, who's an amazing producer in town. And I built that out and that was my first commercial space. But like within the first year and COVID started happening, 
the clients I was working with stopped wanting to come do listens in person. And Phil was growing his production company. My wife and I had just bought this house. And I, for some reason, was just like, COVID kind of feels like this is going to last a long time. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to see me anymore. A&Rs are not coming by to listen to the record. The bands aren't coming by. So I just told Phil, I think I'm going to go build out a room at my house because I have the space and I have the time. Do you want to take this whole spot over? Because I just feel like you need more space for your business to grow. You need some more rooms and stuff. And he was literally like, yes, I want all of it. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Not in like a jerk way, but he was like, yes, if you left, that would be great. I was like, awesome. So he essentially, he wanted to take over, which worked out for you. Yeah, and I kind of sensed that and we chatted about it. So he took everything over and I built this room out that I'm in, which was a bedroom, but we took it to the studs and I did it basically by myself. My dad came for a day or two to help demo and do some drywall. But this is basically a glorified bedroom, mastering room, double drywall insulation. There's floating floor. And then I I didn't create this because I didn't create acoustics, but <laughs> there's a curtain wall behind me. Right. And that goes about four feet deep. You mean the space behind it's four feet deep? Yeah. So I had this hypothesis slash theory of after studying acoustics and talking with a couple of acousticians, I learned and what I found If I can control the low end off the front wall, so immediately right behind the speakers, then almost everything else takes care of itself. If I control that front wall, and not the corners, but the front wall generally has the highest buildup of sound, not the Hmm. corners. People are obsessed with corners because that's the second spot usually. For some reason, right behind the speakers gets neglected for a lot of people. And I started studying... What can I use to control 60 hertz and below, control decay, so it it doesn't reverberate everywhere in smaller to medium rooms? Outside of like having a warehouse, you're never going to really be able to allow low end to have a full cycle. It needs like 40 to 60 feet (laughs) to complete one. Right. So most people are going to run into low end decay issues and sustains. So I started messing around with air, which is the best sound controller you can use Mm -hmm. and created this system that is a combination of safe and sound rockwell type material i really fell in love with mass loaded vinyl so there's a bunch of mass loaded vinyl hanging and then in front of that there's a four inch thick 703 and then in front of that a bit is the curtain so it's kind of like this sandwich of things that treat the whole frequency spectrum from like 20 to 20k The air does a lot of the low end and then just the space between the materials and mass loaded vinyl helps a lot knock down some of the bottom end. I created this system. I call it the curtain wall system. It's super easy. If your listeners want to, I have literally it all typed up of everything you have to buy. I give it away for free. Where's that? I can just email it to you. It's not on my website. Well, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. How about you send it to me and I'll create a link for everybody in the show notes and they could just download it so you don't perfect. get inundated that would be for, great for the next actually. for the next yeah. 10 years with people right. going, i heard you like 20 years ago on this podcast right, exactly so anyway I, I found if i can control that front wall behind the speakers almost everything else solves itself mids and highs like it just creates this beautiful kind of waterfall because for me like flat is more like the base is a tad higher and then it slopes down like how we naturally hear There's this obsession right now with flat rooms and software correcting, making everything flat. 
But yeah, I created this system and it, it was the best sounding room I've ever been in. I shot it and it shot really well. I had built this idea at the commercial studio for Phil and me. It worked well there, worked well here. And now I've done like six other rooms in town and everybody's like, this is the best. That's great. And it's just so simple. You don't have to worry about a ton of back wall treatment. You don't have to have like panels all throughout your room. You can just have first reflections in a cloud. And it just creates this really nice focus for where you work. So anyway, that's what I did in this room. It's been great. I've been in here for about almost three years. I have the Barefoot O1s, which I really like on sound anchors. I think you have to pair them with the right stand. It's like buying a Ferrari and buying the right tires for it. I believe you should approach speakers buying the right stands. And I love them. So this room is 100% me and how I like to hear records. And that's where I've been working for the last few years. And it's been great. Hmm. I have no plans of moving out of here just because it's set up exactly how I want it. It sounds exactly how I want it. I'm not lacking anything. And none of my clients complain, which is nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. so you've been there in Nashville for quite some time. Yes. Have you found that community-wise, you're in the right spot aside from career? Yeah. You came from a conservative Christian family. Yeah. And I know that in not being a non-religious person, uh, even I know this, that when you go to Nashville, there's just, there's probably as many, if not more churches than there are recording studios. So have you carried that forward? And did you immediately like get into a church and find community there? No, I actually left the church when we got here, to be honest. Okay. But yeah, I, I really left I'll say organized religion in general, when I got to Nashville. And there was a lot that went into it. And overall, my conclusion was, I just felt like what I believed in and saw in the world and wanted to be a part of just didn't fit into the religion I was brought up in. Like Mm -hmm. it just, it felt very narrow. And creating art and creating art with different people I just always felt like I was on the defense or something or like trying to, for a lack of a better term, like convert people to believe something that really they didn't want to believe in. (laughs) Right. And they they were fine. I grew up being told basically like people that didn't subscribe to the dogma of the Christian religion are unhappy and bad people and they need what you have. Mm -hmm. So I got out into the real world and I was like, these people seem very fine. Like... (laughs) (laughs) These people are just okay. (laughs) They seem great. They're actually happier than me, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. When you mentioned earlier about not being able to listen to rap. Right. My big, and and I don't want to turn this into a big, you know, religious discussion. Yeah. But but I will say this, in regards to music and how important music has been in in, in my life as it is to all of you listening to the podcast and us talking here, is that I remember my parents who are Catholic, we would go to a, a regular church, seem normal, boring right. every Sunday. Right. I'd, I'd like space out and think about other things. But right. then for some reason, we went to a different church one Sunday. I don't know why. I, maybe we were trying it out. Yeah. And the priest up there started to rail, rail on rock and roll. It's the yeah. devil's music. Right. And after we got out, I said, Dad, that guy's full of shit. <laughs> and we got to stop coming here. Let's go back right. to the other church because this is just bullshit. Right. And it really turned me off 
from that's religion really kind of what I ran into, honestly, as I got older, for lack of a better term. Yeah, this is bullshit. There were just things I kept running into. And I'm like an optimist pacifist at the end of the day. Like, I want everybody to be happy, whole, and healthy. And if that means you believe in whatever religion, I just hope everybody's right at the end of the day. Whatever is <laughs> going to like, Whatever you decide, I hope it works out I for you. I hope it works right. out well for you, you know? And right. that's something I've taken a lot of backlash over the years for essentially departing organized religion. And I think what I'm just focused on is being present with whatever's going on now and focusing on my clients and work in this this podcast. And, right. and I don't longer carry the burden of fearing about the future or what happens when we die. I went to therapy for all this actually in Nashville to like sort all this out because it became a, I'll say it became a mental illness on some level to me of anxiety, depression. And I think bad religion and bad theology creates mental illness because it puts you in a... Not the band. Yeah, not the band. <laughs> no, the band's great. That band creates joy Yeah, for me anyway. But I think a lot of people that are religious live in this state of anxiety about future because they're concerned about, am I going to get in wherever I'm going to get in? And then you're reminded every week of how bad you are Right. Which is depression to me. Like, am I in the list? Yeah, exactly. And I think being in that state of mind, you get in this cycle because I was here. I'm just speaking from personal experience of you're never present. And the irony of Christian religion is Jesus talks a lot about being present. And for some reason, that seems to be ignored all the time. Of like, yeah. <laughs> you just be here, you know. I will say this, though. While I am not a big church going person, yeah. By any stretch of the imagination. I do have many friends who are, and yeah. that's important to them. And they are people right. that I greatly respect. So I always kind of come up to the line of not bashing totally my friends' choices of religion because they're good people. And Absolutely. we get along great. Right. But yeah, it's a challenge. I, I understand. That's how I feel. Just don't cross the line of pissing me off on rock and roll and rap music. I mean, it's right. just like that. When <laughs> I heard that, words. that was it. I was like, I'm out. Right. I just feel like within Nashville and in the younger community, there's so many people I know that are a part of different religious, either churches or beliefs, and they're just so unhappy. And I think part of it has to do with the belief system is, I want to say, holding them back on some level. or I don't know. I just feel like for me, I had to depart it. And once I did, I became a much happier whole human. And my mm -hmm. wife would say that. My friends, like my parents would say that. And my parents are still like devout, go to church people. And that was a long journey. But I just want people to be happy. If you love your church, go to it. You love your temple. You love whatever practice you do. If that makes you happy and whole and you feel great, then awesome. But if not, then I think you should reexamine it, you know? <laughs> Think if it's making you unhappy, Good advice. then be willing to ask the question of, is this serving me anymore? You know, We are out of time, but I want to tell you, audience, there's going to be many links in the show notes. Sam's going to send me this information that we're talking about. That'll be there. Be a link to Moses Mastering on Instagram, mosesmastering.com, of course. So you can check that out, as well as the Attack and Release podcast, which... Now I'm going to have to go and check out those early episodes, but I, I'm definitely looking forward to getting the information about the curtain method or how, yes, what, however the you curtain wall it. system. The curtain wall system by Sam Moses. Which I stole the word system from John Brandt, who I love, and we've interviewed him on the show. And he's part of my acoustic journey, but he talks about rooms being a system and how everything impacts the system. So 
he knows I think I stole that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, Sam, it's been great chatting with you. I really appreciate your time and hearing about your journey. And like I say, audience, you got to check this podcast out and follow Sam and keep up with what he's doing because he's got some cool stuff going on. Great to meet you, Sam. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for your time too. It's been awesome. Well, you take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Sam Moses here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I certainly appreciate it. Remember, this show runs on guests. They fuel the show. So if you have a guest suggestion and you want to nominate somebody to be on the show, head on over to workingclassaudio.com. Find the guest suggestion form. Fill it out. I'll check them out and hopefully get them on the show. It'd be really great. But that's all for me today. I want to thank... The crew, who, of course, is Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Magical Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.